At some point in the last few years, you or somebody you know has decided to train for a marathon. Sometimes it's to raise money, other times it's a fitness challenge, or a way to make a change in your life. Running for fun has never been as popular and so firmly entrenched in our zeitgeist than it is today. It's estimated that during the 2018 London Marathon, runners raised more than 20 million pounds for over 2,000 charities. While you and I may run the occasional 5 or 10k race to casually dip our toes into a runner's shoes, there are those who have turned long-distance running into a lifestyle choice, constantly training for or recuperating from multiple races a year. Tarang is one of these runners who has incorporated long-distance training into his lifestyle for nearly nine years while raising funds for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. His current goal is to raise $100,000 for the organization by June 15th. This is his story. I'm Yasmina Sakat, and you're listening to Not That Original, a podcast that brings you stories that may not be so different from your own. Since 2009, you've completed 10 marathons, 6 triathlons, 1 Ironman, and three century bike rides. Why do you do it? So the story I tell is this, is that I got into running like a lot of people do, which was to lose weight uh, and to get fit. And, you know, I always start by saying, well, especially when I was in college, I was a really fat kid, like orca fat, right? And eventually, you know, and, and my mother would keep saying like, you know, Tarang Beta, you need to lose weight. And I used to always say, but mom, you know, round, you know, she'd she always be like, you need to get into shape. That's what she used to say. And I would say, well, mom, round is a shape. And, you know, that would, that would, that would, that bought me like two, three years. Uh, but then eventually I finally decided I had to get my act together. And I told myself, well, if I can run a full marathon, I guess I'm fit. So basically I signed up to do a marathon. Actually, I'd signed up to do a half marathon. And then they convinced me to train for a full because they were like, well, if you like wanted to do a full, you know, if you sign for a half, then it's hard to train up, but you can always go down to a half. It's like, oh, okay, let's, let's do that. So I signed up for a full and then, I, and then I didn't look back. And it's one of those things that the whole experience was so addictive that I signed up for a second marathon even before I ran my first marathon because I got so addicted to the team aspect and things like that. So to do this, I joined this organization called Team in Training. And a bunch of my friends had done races with Team in Training before, specifically triathlons. And I thought to myself, oh, like they've had a really good time doing this. Sounds like a wonderful experience. And it happens to be for like a really good cause. So why not sign up with Team in Training and do this one? Because what Team in Training does is they raise money for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Uh, to help cure blood cancers. And then the way the program works is if you want to do a race, you sign up with team and training 
and they will coach you to give you a team to train with, a full training schedule. You get this whole community of athletes. And in return, what you do is you fundraise uh, for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And so it seems it's like a win-win-win for like so many people involved. And then that's why I started it. And then I continued to do it because um, unfortunately the cause became more personal. So that's why I keep doing it. How did it become more personal? So it ended up becoming about uh, two important women in my life. Um, my One of my best friends from college, Marianne Jackson, and uh, my favorite aunt, uh, Anila Mattel. So Marianne Jackson was someone I met uh, my freshman year of college. And, you know, the way we met was I did what any, you know, nice immigrant brown boy would do for a gorgeous redhead like her. I fixed her computer. Uh, and, you know, as and that's how our friendship started. And it blossomed into this really amazing friendship. We kept up, you know, over many years. It's, it was even one of those things where, like, you know, you lose touch briefly and then you kind of get back into it. And so it was March of 2011 that I got to attend her gorgeous wedding in Washington, D.C. And but then five months later, in August of 2011, I got a phone call saying, hey, I've been diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia uh, or AML. And the particular strain of AML that she had, the doctor said that there's a high chance of relapse, even if even with successful bone marrow transplants. So she started going through all the motions that you normally go through when you are diagnosed with something that kind of cancer. You start with chemotherapy, you get radiation, you get a bone marrow transplant. And she did have one and it didn't take. And then eventually actually what happened was she, I lived in Seattle at the time and she was living in Washington, D.C. at the time. She actually came to Seattle for six months uh, to get treated at the Fred Hutch Center. So if there was a silver lining of her sickness, it was that, like, I got to spend a lot of good quality time with her. And then so she was in Seattle for a while and trying some experimental treatment at Fred Hutch, actually went in for a second bone marrow transplant, which was hoping to succeed because she would be a better match for that bone marrow transplant. And unfortunately, that didn't take either. And then she then moved to Pennsylvania to get treated at another facility there for another experimental trial. And then I actually did hear from her for a little bit. I would hear from, you know, her, her husband every now and then. But then, it, you know, she was the one then that got super excited about my training. And then eventually when I signed up to do an Ironman, uh, which kind of snowballed because all my friends were doing it, I dedicated all my fundraising efforts, team and training and the Kimilifoma Society to her. And so she was like the main person who I felt like she knew my training schedule better than me. Like I'd get texts from her and be like, Did you, how was your swim this morning? And, you know, like, how was your long bike ride? And it was actually really cool because she kind of kept me motivated through my own training. And a lot of the times when I would be like, oh, I don't want to train today. It's like super hard. And I get a text from her and I was like, well, she's going through something so much harder. Like I have no excuse not to train. And so that was like a really good push and, and you know, kept me going quite a bit. And, and then unfortunately in... In 2013, she, she wasn't doing that well. Um, and, you know, when she was first diagnosed in 2011, one thing the doctors told her was that, you know, you have anywhere from six months to two years to live. And, if, you know, if anything they got right, unfortunately, they got that part right. And in October of 2013, uh, she passed away. I think she was like 
45 days shy of her 30th birthday. And that was pretty hard for me. And in fact, I think it was that event is what sort of made me realize two things. Uh, One, how important people are to me in my life and to not take that for granted. Uh, And the second was that life's too short for me not to do the things I want to do. And hence, six months after that happened, I packed my bags and moved to New York City because that's what I always wanted to do. Um, And so now I keep doing all these races and raising money for the Kima Lymphoma Society. I used to do them all for me, and now I do them for her. So that's like a big part of the story. And the other part of the story is that along the same time that was happening, my favorite aunt, who was married to my uncle on my dad's side, she was diagnosed with lymphoma, with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And, you know, she went through all kinds of treatments, chemo, radiation, and then she actually went into remission uh, for like a year or two and then came back. And then I think uh, like six months after Marianne passed away, she passed away. And then so suddenly I had this unfortunate too close of a connection to this cause. Um, and so I'm pretty active with the society now, like raising money and, and awareness for them. So I started doing all the team and training stuff, you know, entirely for me. And then now that I have these, these uh, personal reasons, I do them all for them. You've told me before about how you find team and training to be great because of the team aspect of it. Can you elaborate a little bit about it since running is generally kind of thought of as a solitary sport? Oh, that's a really good question. So, you know, the way the team end up ends up getting structured is, so let's take an example of the New York City Marathon. Mm-hmm. And a whole bunch of people sign up to do the New York City Marathon and a bunch of them sign up to do it through team and training. Um, I believe last season we had almost 200 people sign up via team and training for the New York City Marathon in New York City alone. Mm -hmm. And what the team setup ends up being is uh, team and training will make sure we have like almost um, seven or eight coaches, right? And all of these coaches are people who run at different paces. Uh, there's There's a head coach who kind of makes sure the whole program is running great. But then you have a coach who uh, we'll be running the nine-minute mile group. There'll be a coach who does the run walk, a coach who does like the 12-minute mile group and so on. And so all of us gather together um, on a Tuesday night or a, and, and a Saturday morning in the same spot in Central Park. And we meet together as a team. We do what we call a mission moment where someone like – but someone would share a story just like I did as to why we do this. Mm-hmm. And then we break out into these pace groups and we go run together. And some of these runs can long as uh, can last as long as three hours. So you know what happens as a result is you spend so much time with these same set of people over a 20-week period, and that's where you get this team feeling from, where they're all helping you out. And actually, you know, while running is a solitary sport, what I learned was I enjoy it a lot when I'm running with someone else, and especially when I have to do a very long run, and I'm not feeling good, or the run's hurting, and I need someone to help me get up that hill there is this psychological push of someone who's running with you. And that's how that team ends up being. And then, of course, after, after these runs, we'll go have a beer. So <laughs> uh, it's, uh, you know, we'll negate the whole workout, but then we bond a lot together. Well, that's good. So when you run with team in training, when you participate in an event like the, the New York Marathon, do you have to qualify on your own? No, that's a really good question. So um, one of the benefits that you get 
uh, with running with a team in training to, for example, the New York City Marathon, team in training gets a certain a number of slots that they can use mm-hmm. uh, to give you a slot in the New York City Marathon because it's a charity slot. So this is a great way to also get entry into these really popular races that normally you have to either qualify for or win the lottery for. But because you do it with team and training and you're raising money for a charity, you are basically guaranteed a spot that you uh, that you can get when you do the race with them. How much do you have to raise for something like a marathon? You know, so it depends on the marathon. Uh, I believe the New York City Marathon, you have to raise close to $3,000. And one of the reasons for that is the is the race entry, right? Um, is to guarantee that kind of race entry, you have to raise a lot of money. Um, but then some, you know, uh, for example, if you signed up for your own race and you are traveling for the race yourself mm-hmm. uh, and everything, then you have to fundraise maybe 750 or or $1,000 just for like the team experience. Uh, but... I've I've also been to races, like for example, I did a triathlon in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. This was back when I lived in Seattle, and team and training like took care of my plane ticket and my hotel and uh, transport of my bicycle back and forth. But for that event, I had to raise like sixty five hundred dollars. So it varies based on the event, and and one of the things that they do is they take all the costs that they incur mm-hmm. uh, to get you there, uh, including that's including the coaching and everything. They multiply that by at least four, and then that's your fundraising minimum. So what that does is it guarantees your donors that at least 75% of your donations are going straight towards the cause. And so what I used to do was I would used to, you know, donate the cost part uh, of team and training myself Mm -hmm. so that I tell my donors, hey, everything you donate is all going to the cause. So do you cover the cost of participation yourself so that everything you fundraise actually goes towards the cause? Yeah, I tend to do that myself because I, I I know I can and I make big donations to team and training anyway. Mm-hmm. So why not cover that myself so that my donors feel, the people I reach out to for money feel that their money is all going towards the right cause and not like sending me on a trip to Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that make, okay, that makes sense. So what does training for a marathon entail compared to a 10K, for example? So, you know, it's funny. I haven't actually trained for a 10K, but what I imagine it entails compared to a 10K is, um, in the end, it's an endurance event, right? And so you have to build the fitness uh, over a span of time and get your body used to running both that distance and for being active for that period of time. And our typical training schedule I think most of these marathon training schedules, the team and training signs, anywhere from 16 to 20 weeks, you run for about three or four days of the week, um, and you do about a day or two of cross-training. And a cross-training could be something along the lines of strength training, or maybe doing swimming and things like that, uh, whatever you can find. And uh, our typical schedule as a team is we would meet on Tuesday nights and Saturday mornings, and the rest of the workouts are your own. And uh, on Tuesday nights, we would typically do sort of speed workouts or strength workouts. A speed workout would be, you know, um, doing tempo training where for a period of time you run harder than a standard endurance pace, recover for a minute, and then do that again. And that helps build up speed. Or strength workouts like doing hill training, uh, running up and down hills actually builds a lot of strength in your, in your legs. And then on Saturdays, we uh, do our long runs, which is when week over week, we keep increasing our mileage. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, normally we start with like three or four miles on the first Saturday. It might become five or six miles. And then eventually it becomes 18 to 21 miles. And that's like the last long run you do before race day. And you do that about three or four weeks before the race um, so that your body can fully recover and actually comes back stronger uh, than the day you ran your 18 to 21 miles. That's that's what we call our uh, cool down. I'm actually not forgetting the exact uh, taper. It's our taper. Uh, you know, you taper from training and then you go to the finish. And then our midweek runs are basically runs to keep our fitness up, which is, you know, usually about four or five miles. And that's just to make sure that you're continuing to keep your fitness up and not just doing two days a week and hurting yourself. You said you you train for about 16 to 20 weeks. That that sounds like quite the commitment. Yeah, I guess it's actually a lifestyle. <laughs> you know, you have to, the first few weeks are hard because you're getting used to it, but then you get a gro- into the groove of, of it, becomes, it becomes a lifestyle change. Like, you know, you get used to the schedule of, well, Tuesday nights, I got to be at uh, team and training because you have to six or seven in the morning and go to this thing. And then as the season goes later and later, you know, even your Saturday nights start going out because, or stop going out because, you know, you're like, I just ran 18 miles. I don't think I can go do anything today. So uh, it, it does become a commitment. And I think, I think the best way to treat it is to treat it like I'm having a lifestyle change. And then those are easier to figure out once you're committing to the fact that you're doing a lifestyle change. Did you change your eating habits? Yes and no. Uh, I mean, in some ways, my eating habits got worse because I'm like, I can eat anything I want. But no, I, I think I think my eating habits tend to almost become better every time I exercise more. Mm-hmm. And I think it's my body just knowing it wants something else. And I've noticed for myself, and this is not a generality for anybody else, is that you know when I am eating healthier, I tend to work out more. And when I tend to work out more, I tend to eat healthier. Um, and so there's this like this weird cycle of me trying to keep my whole body healthy. Yeah, I tend to do that too, actually. When I start working out, I tend to crave healthier foods. Yeah, it's, um, I, I, I tend to cook more when I'm working out. I tend to watch more carefully what I order from a menu when I'm working out. So yeah, I, and, and so it's, it's bad when I'm not working out because then I go into the death <laughs> spot. So I always have to make sure that I keep it back up. What do you think about while you run? I think about anything. So I used to run with music. And then, you know, when I started doing triathlons, um, during a triathlon race, actually, there's a strict no music policy, which makes sense. It's for it's for safety, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, 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 I bet they were like, let's not make a distinction between biking and running on this music thing. Let's just turn it off everywhere. And so... I then started training without music so that I could run a race without music so, I don't, so that it's not a crutch. And what I realized was I just spend my time thinking about literally everything. Uh, I can think about just work. I can think about friendships. I can think about dating. I can think about, oh, I have to cook this dinner. But everything I think about, I tend to think about it with a clearer head. And even the sad stuff, I tend to think about it in, you know, with just a clear mind. And so, or angry stuff or whatever. So it's become a really interesting way to have some kind of catharsis or have a clear way of thinking about a problem I'm having without having the emotion into it. Um, So to answer your question from the beginning, I think about everything. It sounds very contemplative. Yeah. 
I, and in some ways it is meditative because it's like, I mean, I haven't done meditation, so I cannot really compare to it. But mm-hmm. in terms of it giving me clarity, it's probably one of the best things I do. Training for a marathon sounds fairly painful. How do you keep doing it? That's a good question because I keep asking that myself that, especially when I, I'm at mile 23 of a marathon. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the thing that brings me back to doing it is, well, so one thing is I tend to stay fitter when I sign up for a race, right? Mm-hmm. So so that I, I, it's, I found that it's hard to motivate me to go work out unless I have an end goal related with a workout. Like, and I'm trying to figure out how to change my mindset to work out for the sake of working out and not just this other goal. But anyway, so that's why I sign up for races. And then, you know, I think then the fact that something like team and training exists and I have this wonderful friend crew to run with and train with, it becomes easier to do it every time. It's still hard and still a lot of work. But I don't think if I had a group of people to do it with me, I could do it. I've only done one race, one marathon where I trained for it all by myself. And I did it and I got it done. And But it was really hard. Like the motivation, this was this was a time where like I was really forcing myself to be highly motivated, which in itself was exhausting. Um, but I got it done. And I, and I think I can do it again if I wanted to, but I prefer to do it with the group. And I think that's how I can do it every time. What's more painful, the training or the race? I think it's the race because training, right? Like, if you have a bad training day, you can you can and should just stop, mm-hmm. right? So if you're going through, like, yeah, either you're having, like, bad nutrition that day or, you know, you're having muscle cramps or your knee is just feeling bad or muscle is too tight, the smart thing to do for your body is actually to not push yourself on training day because that's what training is about. It's about finding the problems and it's about recovery and things like that. And so I think... But on race day, you feel motivated. Like if those pains come back, you're like, no, it's race day. I got to finish this, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think in that sense, it's more painful. However, race day comes with, oh, my God, like I am done. Let me now just go get mm-hmm. bad of ice cream, right? Um, whereas training, you know, comes with, okay, I'm done. I need to go sleep now. <laughs> and so, so you, you have to take a little bit of hit on that social life. But the nice thing is my group is the social life, so that helps. Um, but, but yeah, I, I, think, I think overall race day is more painful, but, you know, training is painful in different ways. Have you ever hit the wall during a race? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, it's, it usually comes in the form of I, I feel drained. I don't have the energy anymore. And actually, I think I figured out the best time when I hit this wall, and it's around mile 23. And so now for about four or five marathons in a row, I've had this tradition where a friend of mine meets me at mile 23 with a beer. Uh, it, it started as a joke the very first time. Somebody was there on mile 23 with a beer. And here's, here's what it does to me. I don't finish the whole beer, mm-hmm. but it's a few things that happen. One it's something to look forward to at a time when I'm feeling really terrible about the race. Because mm-hmm. when I'm at mile 23, I question the way I make life choices. Because <laughs> I'm trying to answer to myself, why am I here? Why am I doing this again? What is wrong with you? Right? So, so that's, that's, that's one part of why it's important. The second reason why it's important is you have someone waiting for you. 
So it's something to look forward to. Uh, the beer itself has, you know, uh, carbs. <laughs> it has some electrolytes. And it takes just a little bit of that edge off. So that helps. And, and number four, it is a great photo opportunity uh, to, you know, for me to be like, yeah, I'm having a beer in my marathon in mile 23. And so that's something that's really helped me get past that wall. And actually, I think it was the Amsterdam Marathon where uh, you and Anant were both there. And Anant was waiting for me with, his, with my beer at mile 23. And I kid you not, like I started running faster after I drank like a third of that beer. It, it, I think it took some of the pain away. So, so yeah, it, that, that's, that's how I've hit a wall. And, and, and that's what I've done to fix it. Or the best thing I've done to fix it. Do you have a ritual before a race? Do I have a ritual before a race? Well, a standard thing that we do as a team is the night before we have like a pasta dinner, right? To mm -hmm. carb up and things like that. Uh, I definitely don't drink alcohol for like the 10 days leading up to the race. And then uh, a ritual before race itself. Yeah, I guess in the morning I like to make my two eggs with a tortilla uh, to get, get my nutrition on. And then I like to listen to like a playlist that I have with, you know, songs to pump me up. And before the race, I like, I like to find my balance of hanging out with my friends from the group, but now race day is race day and it's about me. And I kind of almost go into my bubble mm -hmm. and, you know, so that I can focus on, on the actual running. And most of it is also because the first five miles are really annoying because you're, it's in the big crowd of the corral that you started in. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that gets a little annoying. It's a little dense. And yeah. so to, get out of, out of that density, I like to go into my mental bubble. And then after that, I get friendly again. What's the hardest race you've run? It would be the full Ironman that I did. Uh, that was in August of 2012. Just because of the dis distances? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, you know, a full Ironman is kind of nuts. It's a 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike ride, and then followed by a full marathon. So it took me... I don't know, 15 hours? Yeah, it took me 15 hours to finish. Uh, it was crazy talk. Um, I, I, I did it because eight of my best friends signed up, and I, I realized if there was ever a chance for me to do an Ironman, that was my best shot because eight of my best friends had signed up. So I signed up, and I did it. And it was also, you know, it was the hardest race I did, but I think it's also one of the, maybe it's still the best day of my life yet. And my parents came all the way from India for it. You know, 20 of my best friends from Seattle all drove up to cheer on the rest of the eight or nine of us. Um, so it was it was pretty incredible. And I finished. Where was uh, the Ironman? This was in a town called Penticton in British Columbia in Canada. Mm -hmm. This race is called Ironman Canada. And for 30 years, it used to be in this town in Penticton. I did it in the last year that it was in Penticton. And now this race is hosted in Whistler, British Columbia. So... You're up for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society's Man of the Year. What does that entail? Oh, God. Yeah, I am. I really don't like the title, but yes. <laughs> uh, what does it entail? Actually, so I got nominated to run for this campaign, which is a 10-week-long fundraising campaign. It started on April 5th, and it ends on June 15th, so that's coming up. And basically, whoever raises the most number of dollars wins the man of the year. And similarly, there's a competition with the ladies who win the woman of the year. And so it's, it's, it's actually pretty exciting. Uh, it's, it's really interesting to see how many people have donated, how different types of people come to help out, 
how I actually have a team that uh, is helping me raise all these funds. My goal is to raise $100,000, uh, which is a pretty ambitious goal. That is. And which is why I have a really good team who is helping me get there. And, you know, we're raising this money through multiple different channels, like my own direct fundraising, but we're also putting together events. My father is helping me with some corporate fundraising uh, and things like that. So that's the Men and Women of the Year campaign. You said when does it end? It ends on June 15th. So that's on June soon. 15th, there's, yeah, that's, um, it's not that long, that's not that far away. And on June 15th, there's going to be this big gala, uh, which is the grand finale. And we raise even more funds at the gala. And at the end of the gala, they, they announce uh, who the winners are and how much the entire team has raised or the entire campaign has raised, I should say. What are some of the challenges of fundraising? You know, so the challenge of fundraising is, is getting over. I think the main challenge that anyone has is getting over the fact that people are shy to ask people for money, which totally makes sense. It's an awkward thing to ask for. However, it's actually not that hard because there are a few things I realized. One, the worst thing that people can say is no. And the other thing is you're not asking for money for yourself. So it's not like asking for a loan or begging for something. It is asking people to support a cause and and try to get them connected to the cause and why you, and why you want them to donate to it. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is most people will donate at least something, right? They just need to be reminded. Very few people will actually say no. And you know, and if they say no, they they'll do it silently. It's fine. You don't have to like, you know, push on it because there are plenty of other people. So I think that's the first big challenge. The other challenge. That some of, and this is a challenge you have with if you do team and training really often, mm-hmm. is if you're doing it all the time, then then there's also donor fatigue, right? Like people have heard this from you so many times, and there isn't. Um, sometimes it's actually good because you're like, oh, it's it, yes, I know you do this every year, so I have money earmarked to donate to you. But they can also be like, hey, man, I've already donated to you, like get off my back, right? And so. I'm not saying that's how people actually think, but that's how I interpret it in my head. So I think that's probably the biggest challenge. And then the other challenge is, you know, how do you come up with, like events are a good way to raise money, but then you have to figure out how to organize the event in a way that your costs are low enough that the revenue you make from the event is big enough to like go to the to the cause. Mm-hmm. And then how do you make the event enticing enough for people to show up so that it goes all goes towards the cause? I think those are some of the challenges that uh, that you face. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've learned this year, for example, I've only done like giant email blasts, right? And then for my father, I've learned, oh, there's also value in hitting up very specific people with, you know, uh, individualized curated emails, right? Um, to, to see if, if they'll be willing to donate too. So that's another tactic that I'm doing. So I think it's about learning all the different ways that people might be willing to respond to you, right? And trying all those different ways out. Why do you think people donate to runners? There's a specific, you know, there, there's so much fundraising around running specifically. What do you think is the appeal? I think the reason why a lot of fundraising is tied to endurance events is because the person doing the endurance event is also demonstrating, hey, I'm doing something hard. It's not nearly as hard as, hey, someone who has cancer but that's the least that I can do to then raise awareness and hence get your support for this cause. Because in the end, if you think about it, 
getting donations is about raising awareness, right? Because if you are aware that there's something happening that needs help, then you know you might be willing to donate. But then if you want to donate, people usually need a connection to say why this is important. And I think runners bring that connection because they themselves are doing something hard. Like there is a way of saying, oh, okay, this person is running a marathon to cure cancer. What am I doing? Let me donate some money, right? Okay. Uh, and I, I think I think that's that's my guess on why that that mentality is there. What do you think of marathons becoming more accessible and common? I think it's great. Um, I think like you know the ability for more and more marathons to be out there and people choosing to run them is a great thing. It's not like music festivals where you know they become so corporate you don't enjoy the music i guess maybe some races become like that but really in the end you know they're, they're still pretty pure it's like you go you show up you run as long as the race is well organized and has the right stops good nutrition good good crowd control um i think that's great so i hope there are even more and that way there are more people who are enticed to run it keeps them healthy and then, which means there'll be more people enticed to maybe run for a cause. And um, that will help with fundraising. So I think it's all great. Are you currently registered for any upcoming marathons or other long-distance long races? I'm doing a half marathon this year. Um, I'm currently registered for a for the uh, Rock and Roll San Diego half marathon. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually tying that a little bit with my fundraising campaign. So basically, if people donate $100 or more by um by basically like end of may i will uh using henna write their name on my arms and legs one week before the race <laughs> so that when i'm running the race people will see with henna like all these different names that uh people have uh donated to me so that's that's the race that's coming up next how can people donate oh thank you for asking that question so if you like to donate, my team has set up a page called – my team is called the T-Cell Warriors. T-Cells are these uh, cells in your body that help fight cancer. And uh, we picked T-Cells because, like, my name starts with T is Toronto. So, yeah, our team is T-Cell Warriors. And you simply go to T-CellWarriors.org. Uh, no punctuation, just straight up T-CellWarriors.org. And it takes you to our fundraising page, and you can make a donation. That's great. Thank you very much, Tarang. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Not That Original. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and feel free to share this podcast.